Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter. It's toward the end of the Bible, or if you have a device, you can locate it there. 2 Peter. About nine-tenths of the way through your Bible. We are in a season of persuasion, and this happens at least every two years, and then every fourth year in the United States from August through November and the election season, we are being persuaded to vote for this candidate or that one. There are various tactics that are used. These tactics are not unique just to political races. They can be used for advertisement and business purposes. They can be used in social interactions. They can be used on the playground, at the water cooler, through media. The kinds of persuasive techniques are not new to the United States. They trace back in history even to ancient Rome and the rhetorical practices that Aristotle and others wrote about. The kinds of tactics that someone or a group of people would use to get others to follow after them. They might speak against a person. Maybe you've heard of the ad hominem argument. That's against a person or against a group of people. Often it's this more negative kind of speech that we hear of and seems to be the most persuasive from what the experts in media tell us and that an election shows. And one of those techniques is, is slander. Maybe you have heard a political candidate say, my opponent is slandering me by stating this or this. And it could be just a caricature that this person did receive a bit of money from X group that is not liked, but it could have been you know, $10,000 and the campaign is you know, $10 million that they're spending or something like that. But they did take $10,000. Or my opponent voted for this bill 35 years ago, right? Uh, and and the, you're slandering me. You're, you're slandering me. You recognize that slander is persuasive. We see that even in Scripture. Remember Exodus 32 when Moses had delayed from coming down on the mountain and the people gathered around Aaron and said, again, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. And the language that they use borderlines on that slander kind of idea. He's, he's left us or God has taken him away or maybe he's been unfaithful. Make us a God who will go before us. The slander happens by the, the Pharisees against Jesus and the scribes, the religious leaders throughout the Gospels. Paul is, is slandered by his opponents in Galatians. Over and over, he mentions this idea of being, being slandered. And, and the opponents that Paul has are slandering him for the express purpose of pers per persuading the Galatians to go back to their old ways. Slander is effective. And you know that slander is effective maybe in your own spheres. In the office, slander is effective, isn't it? Around the water cooler, a certain group of people there and begin to slander the boss, slander this person. And, and then pretty soon there's, there's an atmosphere that's toxic against the boss or against this person. 
you kids, you know, you're in a group of friends and someone begins to speak badly about another person and pretty soon your friendships are hurt, aren't they? Kids, just a, a word of warning. If you're around friends who speak badly about someone when they're not present, you need to leave those friends because they'll speak badly about you when you're not present. The thing about slander is it, it if someone is a slanderer, it's who they are. It doesn't really matter who's around. They'll find someone to speak against. And often it's to persuade so that they get a following. This is what we see in 2 Peter chapter 2 in the last half of the chapter. I want to take a moment to read... 2 Peter, the first two chapters with you, to follow Peter's logic here and to see how he writes about slander. He's already spoken about this in 1 Peter 4, and we'll come back to that in a bit. 2 Peter, I want to read the first two chapters as we think about rebranding the Christian message and the danger of that because the opponents in view not only slander saints, they not only slander other believers and they deny God, they have gone so far as even to slander Satan and his forces to outright deny the supernatural powers of the world while they continue on in their sin. And their hope is to persuade the, the church in view, a way to, to persuade them to naturalism. Notice Peter's flow of thought. Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way... Entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you have. I consider it right as long as I am in this tent to wake you up with a reminder, knowing that I will soon lay aside my tent as our Lord Jesus Christ has also shown me. And I will also make every effort that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things at any time. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory this is my beloved son, I take delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed 
You do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, moved by the Holy Spirit, men spoke from God. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their unrestrained ways, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced long ago is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but threw them down into Tartarus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment, and if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to ruin, making them an example to those who were going to be ungodly. And, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral, for as he lived among them, that righteous man tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous from punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Bold, arrogant people, they do not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. However, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, speak blasphemies about things they don't understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed, suffering harm as the payment for unrighteousness. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions as they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and always looking for sin, seducing unstable people and with hearts trained in greed, accursed children. By abandoning the straight path, they have gone astray. And to follow the path of Balaam, the son of Besor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but received a rebuke for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a whirlwind. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. For uttering bombastic, empty words, they seduce by fleshly desires and debauchery people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption, since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. For if, having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit. And a sow, after washing itself, wallows in the mud. Would you pray with me? Lord, we recognize your power and greatness. 
the clarity and truthfulness of your word, and we pray that you will help us in it today. Help us to see what you have said about the day of judgment, to trust what you have said about it, and to live as those who have been given everything necessary to be fruitful, to participate, to be separated from the deeds of darkness. Awaken any today who don't know you. Let light shine out of darkness. We ask in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. If you're guest with us, we are in the midst of a series in First and Second Peter. We have been walking through these books since Easter. This series in First and Second Peter is actually a, a bit of a reprieve from a larger series in First and Second Chronicles. It began a couple of years ago, and we're in the midst of Second Chronicles. At Easter, we took a break so that we could think about First and Second Peter, somewhat because if you're preaching through large books, there's a church going through large sections of the Old Testament, sometimes it's, it's necessary to follow that broad flow, but it's helpful to take a little break in between, and that's what we are doing here. The connecting point between the audience of First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Peter is the fact that both are aliens and strangers. First and Second Chronicles, these who've been brought back after the exile and who are still in somewhat strangers, even though they're back in their own land because the, the, the Persians and ultimately the Greeks and the Romans yet rule over that nation of people. And, and in the coming of time, Jesus is born. But that, that land is still owned by others, and they feel like exiles even, even in their own land. And Peter's audience is the temporary residents of the dispersion, these who likely after some kind of persecution, maybe something like happens with Paul and at the end of Acts 7 and beginning of Acts 8 when Stephen is martyred and there's this scattering of the church, maybe Peter's writing to those kinds of people in what is modern-day Turkey. And he is, he is writing to these elect exiles, these who have been cast out of their homeland and Peter is setting out for them a worldview that they are to live differently than those around them. And a part of that frame of thought in Peter's mind in Second Peter is that we are the people of eternity living now in time. That eternity has broken in and this is where we live in, in the present day. And this idea of living in light of eternity we're seeing throughout this series in Second Peter, and today here we find ourselves in the latter part of chapter 2. Here in chapter 2, in the first part of chapter 3, we are thinking about the danger of rebranding Christianity. Now, you may have heard of a rebranding. You may have heard of the need to change up a business model or an expression of a logo of business. Something needs to be rebranded. And so there's a new theme, a new slogan, new color scheme perhaps. We're, we're starting over, rebranding. And I want to be clear, I'm not against that. And that, that may be something that's necessary at times, even for, for a church to, to rebrand a new logo, a new color scheme, a new website and that kind of thing. But when I'm talking about the danger of rebranding Christianity. I'm talking about rebranding the message. You think about rebranding Christianity in terms of the message, what I'm speaking of is rebranding Christian doctrine in order to perhaps emphasize some particular aspect of Christian doctrine beyond what it normally is in the flow of Scripture or minimize it, which is more commonly the case. Some particular doctrine of Christianity that isn't popular right now, or I personally at this phase of my life don't appreciate, I'm going to just minimize it, smudge it a little bit, erase it some, so it's not quite as clear, blur it. And along the way, that blurring 
could lead to a convenience. We need to market well, brothers and sisters. Most people, not all, I would say, who change their beliefs away from God do not do so because of a rational process. It's not because they've studied something and now they have new legitimate insight that they have arrived at in the logical processes of cause and effect, antecedent consequence, the normal processes that we make decisions by. That's not the case. Normally it's the case that people go away from God because God is inhibiting their lifestyle in some way. Because Christian doctrine is inhibiting my lifestyle, I have a choice. I have to change my lifestyle or change Christian doctrine. Welcome to 2 Peter. George Caird was one of the leading evangelical theologians of the last century, taught in Canada and in Europe, taught both Old Testament and New Testament. Recently, I was reading a theology book by him, and a statement just struck me. That's what he wrote. Belief in a final judgment was expected without question until the adversaries of the author of 2 Peter dismissed it as a cleverly devised myth. So this is someone who's studying the whole Bible, Old Testament to New Testament, leading thinker. The belief in a final judgment was expected without question until the adversaries of the author of 2 Peter dismissed it as a cleverly devised myth. The author undertakes to prove the reality of the judgment by three proofs here in chapters 1 and 2. That the apostles at the transfiguration saw a preview of the advent glory in which Christ would come to judge the world. That God's, lowercase g, the thought of, of gods of the ancient world, passed judgment of the ungodly. That's a matter of historical record. That's what gods do. And that the heretics bore in their enslavement to vicious habits the evidence of their own condemnation. Peter has in view a group of opponents who have outright denied the judgment altogether. Perhaps it's because it seems to be delayed. But they have the, one of the core ideas of Judaism is that God is going to judge the world at the end. And they have just denied that, set, set it all aside. So... If someone has denied a core tenet of, of faith, like judgment, and they have, as we read in chapter 2 and verse 2, they deny, or rather chapter 2 and verse 1, they deny the master who bought them. If they've done that, it's not going to be a problem for them to even slander Satan's demons. They, they've gone so far that nothing supernatural is believed in, and they are naturalists. And if you find a naturalist in the spiritual sense, I'm not talking about a naturalist in the bot uh, botanical sense that appreciates nature. I'm talking about a naturalist in the, in the spiritual sense, a true materialist. If you have a true materialist on your hand, a true naturalist, you have someone who is for himself. And that's the danger of Darwinian thought. There's nothing supernatural. All we are going to believe are natural processes. And what you get on the end of that is selfishness. Because what I live for is here and now and what pleases me. And this we see here in 2 Peter. On your bulletin there and in the screen before you, we're asking the question today, what's the danger of rebranding the Christian message? Those who slander even the demonic forces while continuing on in sin, they do so, and we need to be clear, this is not just an academic sort of theoretical idea that I'm wanting to plant with you, Dave. No, those who slander God, those who would even go so far as to deny the supernatural altogether, who deny the judgment, they do so in order to persuade you. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 2 here at the beginning, notice there in 
in verse 2, many will follow their unrestrained ways. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, look at chapter 2 and verse 3. In their greed, they'll exploit you. Peter isn't just setting out these ideas in a sense of he wants his audience to be informed. No, he's concerned that they could be persuaded. Because these characters who are coming along denying judgment, denying God, denying the supernatural, naturalism to those who are struggling because of their faith commitments, naturalism has quite an appeal. Why are you denying yourself these pleasures? Why are you denying yourself in that way? Go ahead. Come on. The judgment's not going to happen. Look at us. And on the surface, they can look very persuasive. And that's why, as we look through here, the latter part of, of chapter 2, beginning here at verse 10, we'll go through verse 22 at the end. What I want you to notice is Peter's language and all the adjectives he sets out. Over and over, in an overwhelming literary attempt to define these figures as evil and expose them for who they are, because he's trying to persuade as well. There's a persuasion battle going on, and Peter's opponents are slandering God. They've already slandered believers. They're even denying Satan and, and his, his demons, the demonic power. He's slandering them all so that they can persuade the people away. And Peter's trying to persuade as well, and he's characterizing these people as God sees them, as false, as enslaved to their own sins, so that these believers don't go back. Because it's true, that way might seem easy, and that path might seem straight. But two or three steps down the path of naturalism and denying judgment, and you will find that you are not free. You are more enslaved than you ever were in Christ. And there's now no freedom. Mark it well, friends. If you are newer to Christianity, there's a sense in which Christianity is both freedom and slavery. It's freedom from sin. It's freedom from the condemnation of sin. It's freedom from hell and judgment. But is, is there's slavery involved. You're slaves of Christ. There's slavery to virtue. There's slavery to the body of Christ. There's slavery to love. And at times, that can be tough. And if the environment of life or a certain circumstance of life is thrown on top of that, sometimes naturalism seems to be great. Ditch this whole church thing. I kind of know how to live with self-control and free, but take two or three steps. You'll find you're more enslaved than you've ever been. That's what Peter wants his audience to know. The danger of rebranding Christianity is that those who slander demonic powers, and that's their rebranding the Christian message, while they're pursuing their own passions, it's hypocrisy. They're denying Satan, and they're enslaved by him. They aim to capture the wayward and take them back to the ways of natural man. Pick up the text with me, having uh, surveyed the context here, right in the middle of chapter 2. Pick it up with me in the middle of verse 10. Notice how these are slandering even demonic forces. Bold, arrogant people, they don't tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. This idea of glorious ones has a variety of interpretations over the years. Uh, John Calvin, uh, early Christian, uh, the uh, Reformation period, thought that perhaps glorious ones here was civil magistrates, and perhaps that, that something could be there, various kinds of interpretations. But if, if you skim over from Second Peter here to the book of Jude, just a few pages to the right in your Bible, notice the ideas that are similar here with Jude that Peter writes. This, this idea of, of opponents common to Jude who are, who are slandering angels that, that even angelic powers don't do. They let the Lord rebuke others. Jude has just one chapter, so just verses in Jude 8. 
Nevertheless, these dreamers likewise defile their flesh. They despise authority, exactly similar to 2 Peter 2.10 and following. And they blaspheme glorious beings. Let Jude interpret that, verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, Michael's a great figure, great archangel, appears in the book of Daniel. Even Michael, being so great, did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against Satan. Even such a great, powerful figure as Daniel, in the tradition of Judaism, is not going to blaspheme Satan. Because he understands Satan's power. He, he, this is a, a statement of, yes, there, there is an, an anti-God, Satan, and he is powerful. And he is to be feared in, in that sense, that he is a powerful being. Though we know one more powerful. And this takes us to Jesus' statements in the controversies with the Pharisees. When Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the ruler of demons. And Jesus tells us, but that's foolishness. That would, that would be like self-defeat. Rather, he's the one stronger than Satan who has come to bind up the strong man's house and rob him of his plunder. Jesus is the more powerful one, the one who rules over we who believe. That's why we have a sense of fear towards Satan. We understand we aren't afraid of him. We understand his, his being and nature as one of power, but we understand that power in light of a greater power. You understand what I'm saying? Notice the text. Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people, verse 10, these people that Peter has in view, that Jude has in view, they're humans. They're mortal. And they blaspheme anything they don't understand and what they know by instinct, like Unreasoning animals, they destroy themselves with these things. This is likely who Peter has in view. Back in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, bold, arrogant people, they don't tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones. Verse 11, however, angels who are greater in might and power, even angels don't bring a charge against these demonic forces. But these people, verse 12, they're like irrational animals. That idea in verse 12 of animals is a frame for what we'll see in verse 22. Dogs and pigs. That's how Peter describes them. That's the adjectives he uses. And, and we'll see that, that naturalism is what Peter has in view. These people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. Verse 12, they speak blasphemies about things they don't understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed, suffering harm as the payment for unrighteousness. Richard Bauckham writes, in their confident immorality, the false teachers were contemptuous of the demonic powers. When they were rebuked for their immoral behavior and warned of the danger of falling into the power of the devil and sharing his condemnation, they laughed at the idea, denying that the devil could have any power over them and speaking of the powers of evil in skeptical, mocking terms. They may have doubted the very existence of supernatural powers of evil. <laughs> and yet, though they denied those powers, the irony of the text is their very lives demonstrated that those powers exist and ruled over them. Notice the text. Verse 13, right where we left off, halfway through the verse, they consider it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. It's one thing to carouse at night. It's a whole nother issue if you're carousing in the daytime. There's no shame now. 
Jesus said that people loved darkness because they could hide in the darkness. These people don't even hide. Their blots, verse 13, blemishes, delighting in their deceptions as they feast with you. And for Peter, that's half of the problem. They are associating with the church. In Peter's view, hardly a heresy more dangerous to the church than naturalism. Just the here and now. What do you have if you have naturalists? Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, always looking for sin. They're looking for it. Notice how Peter describes them. Seducing unstable people. The problem with naturalists is they don't keep to themselves. They're persuaders. They're trying to persuade the church away from understanding judgment and, and the grace of judgment and the requirements of judgment. They're trying to persuade the unstable away from that. Come on, just live for today. Live for the now. Verse 14, their hearts are trained in greed. It's not just that they experience this. They have advanced degrees in greed. They have honors, a ceremony in Peter's language. It's a training. It's an, it's an athletic idea of, of of going through a rigor to arrive at a goal. And that's who they are. They're trained in greed. That's what naturalism does. That's, you remove judgment, and that's just what you have. Training in greed. Because every day there's a new strategy for me to get mine, even if it costs me. They abandoned the straight path, verse 15, They've gone astray and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Besor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but received a rebuke for his transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Peter calls attention to Numbers chapter 22 when uh, Balaam was, was hired by Balak, king of Moab, because the Israelites were so numerous, and, and Balak, king of Moab, was a Afraid of the large Israelite army, so he sent for Balaam, who was understood to be a sorcerer, and he, in his messengers to Balaam, said, I will pay you to come and rebuke these people. Along the way, it seems that Balaam's heart was inclined toward greed. Peter speaks of Balaam's greed. Jude does. John does in the Revelation. Over and over, this greed is noted. And that's what you have with naturalism. <clears throat> I'm going to take. And we recognize sympathetically, don't we, that if someone is a naturalist and is denied judgment, it makes sense that they would take from us, doesn't it? It makes sense that they would take from anyone around them because that's all they have. They have made themselves the judge and this moment is their eternity, so they're getting their reward in any way possible. And Peter is especially concerned for the persuasive power of this. It's not just a theoretical issue. Again, chapter 2, there, I had us read 1 Peter 1 and 2 to see the synthesis of the letter and, and let the ideas flow from one to another and how, how paragraphs build on one another. Back in chapter 2, in the first paragraph of, of chapter 2, in their greed, they will exploit you. Peter is, is pastoral. He's concerned for this congregation. He doesn't want them exploited by naturalists who on the surface seem like things are okay. Look, they're not denying themselves. <clears throat> Look, going about their lives, they seem okay. But there's no substance. That's where Peter begins in verse 17. These people are springs without water. They're mists, but they're driven by a whirlwind. There's no source to them. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them. Mark that well. They may look a certain way, but what is coming, just as Peter wrote in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, is hell forever. That's what's reserved for them, darkness. They utter bombastic, empty words, verse 18, they seduce by fleshly desires and debauchery 
people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They are, they are aggressive. They are slandering all directions in order to persuade the church. Look at, look at verse 19. They make promises. That's, that's persuasion, isn't it? Persuasion is both slander my opponent and promise what I can give. They're slandering in all directions. In 1 Peter 4, uh, first six verses, Peter notes that, that these opponents in view had slandered the church. They slander you wanting you to go back to their ways of debauchery. They slander you because you don't go with them. But you know what? You know that there's already been enough time spent in living for selfish desires. You know that. So you don't go back with them. They've barely escaped. They promise freedom, verse 19, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Here's the great irony. They're, they're promising you freedom from ethical demands but their lifestyles demonstrate that they're enslaved to their own passions. This, this is important, believer. There may be times in life where that, that path of freedom from Christian ethics, freedom from love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If I could only be free I could only be free from love your neighbor as yourself. If I could only be free from that, think of all that I could get. That's the lie. If I could only be free from love your neighbor as yourself, think how much more I could have. Think how much more I could own. Think how much higher I could be esteemed. Think how I could truly be appreciated for who I am. How my gifts and abilities would finally be recognized for how great they are. They promised them freedom, but they themselves were slaves of corruption. As soon as someone takes a step down that path of corruption, what you find is that you will never have enough. Your accomplishments and abilities will never be recognized enough. You, like a dog, will chase your own tail. You will chase sin and it will never, ever satisfy. These people, this is their path of life. That's what naturalism leads to. They promise freedom. Look, we're free from love your neighbor as yourself. But you look at them and you see they're enslaved to love themselves. And they're never satisfied. There's never enough. So here we recognize that love your neighbor as yourself is the glorious slavery. This is where you express who you really are in Christ. This is where you're participating in that divine nature statement from chapter 1, and verses 3 and following. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. God has given you everything you need to love your neighbor as yourself, to participate in that. That's where glorious freedom is. These people, though, they promise freedom, but it's not. Verse 19, they are enslaved. They themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them and whatever the dog is chasing. That's the dog's owner. If having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in these things and defeated. Peter's statement in verse 20 sounds exactly like 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. They're going back to what they had before. And you believers, you had enough time in sin. They slander you because you don't go back, but you are aware that though they think they're free, they're more enslaved than you ever were. It would have been better for them 
have not known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, turn back. Peter just being proverbial here, it would be better. This is exactly the person, you, you hear the stories, the person who wins the lottery, and let's assume the best of them. Let's assume they got it as a Christmas gift in a gag party or something, right? They didn't go buy it. Let's assume the moral, let's assume the most moral person who wins the lottery, and pretty soon that ticket they thought would be freedom is worth. It's the very thing I thought would bring me expansive space holds me back. It would have been better, they say, it would have been better if I would have skipped the Christmas party at work that year than I'd have won that lottery. I wish I would have been sick that day. It would have been better for me to have anything happen than show up at work party that day me and all my moral goodness and get that lottery ticket and exchange it for all these millions because I was actually free. Now I'm enslaved. This is what they promise you, believer. Come on. No more love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just some. No more love your neighbor yourself. Love your neighbor. When it, when it mean, you know, whenever. Move those things aside. It's not really a judgment. People have been saying that for millennia. We're here and we're gone. They're actually enslaved. So Peter turns to Proverbs, verse 22. It's happened to them according to the true proverb, and this is what happens to those who experience something of Christianity and who leave it. It's a dog returning to its own sow after washing itself swallows in the mud the sadness of the picturesque just revealing the nature isn't it naturalism natural animals I said verse 12 would be a frame for verse 22 if you look back at verse 12 but these people like irrational animals let's just be there they're just doing their thing out there What's the danger of rebranding the Christian message? Now, those who, who would go so far as to deny God and slander even demonic forces while continuing on in sin, despite the sad irony, their goal is to persuade us, and we have to be aware of that. We have to be constantly aware of those who diminish Christian doctrine in order to give themselves license in some way or promise you license in some way. On the surface, that may look attractive, and in harder moments, it may be appealing, but mark it well. Two or three steps, and you are more enslaved and more frustrated and in a lower state in every way than ever you would be in walking in the love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself commands. There is a freedom that is false. That's what Peter's exposing. If you're a guest with us, we are thinking about fellowship right now in the months of August, September, and October. And we, we have our church calendar divided into various seasons. These seasons correspond with the seasons of the year, fall, summer, and so forth. And, and we are in, in fall each year. We focus on fellowship. So August, September, October are small groups, our adult Sunday school classes, and when it's appropriate, sermon application sort of runs along this theme of fellowship. In the winter months, November, December, January, it's prayer and then discipleship and outreach throughout the year. So fellowship is in view at, at this time, and that's what I want to think with you about for a few moments here. I want to make three statements about rebranding the Christian message and church fellowship. My comments will dovetail with what Jared Shaw shared this morning in Equipping Hour for Adults, if you were with us then. The first is this, judgment day is the fulfillment of our fellowship. Judgment day, brothers and sisters, is not something to be avoided. And by the way, if you're, if you're skeptical about Christianity, you're not fully devoted to, to Christianity, just, I want you to pause for a moment and recognize how foolish it is to, to just avoid the Christian faith because of thoughts of judgment day. Consider for a moment just just literature that's not Christian, movies that are not Christian, uh, across the ages, 
in many of the greatest works of literature or entertainment uh, shows, some judgment concept is involved. The concept of judgment is actually a part of the narrative mix. And the story doesn't make sense without that. Where does that come from? Why is it that humans who aren't Christians have a desire to think about judgment? It makes sense that Christianity would have, Judaism would as well, because that's true. God is a judge. And the judgment is required because of his righteous character. There has to be a point at which God evaluates things. Just like in movies or television or literature, there's an evaluation point, a judgment point. The same here. And for us, brothers and sisters, that is the day of fulfillment of our fellowship. That's what we're all looking forward to. That is the day when it's finally revealed what God has done for us. Paul says in Romans 8, all of creation waits. All of creation groans with labor pains until now. Until the time when the glorious children of God will appear. This is the fulfillment of our fellowship. It's not something we would ever deny. That's what we long for, isn't it? Isn't it the day we long for when you, brothers and sisters, with all of all time are recognized to be God's people and what he has done for us. Judgment day is fulfillment of our fellowship. Second, the text speaks of those who are wayward and those who are struggling. Fellowship prevents them from going astray. Fellowship protects those who are wayward. Fellowship protects those who are in the, the crosshairs of naturalists. The person who's struggling a bit, doubting a bit, come, no, don't. Continually holding out scripture. This, this is what we believe. This is what's true. You need to keep, keep in this. You may not feel it right now. Don't walk by your feelings. Walk by the text of scripture. Belief. Keep going. Feelings will come and go. This season will, the text of this is what God says. You know this to be true. Your own life has demonstrated this. This is what I'm telling you. This now. Look out for one another. Fellowship and words of encouragement prepare us for the day of judgment. Judgment day is the fulfillment of our fellowship. Fellowship and words of encouragement prepare us. For judgment, finally, third, fellowship is to be characterized by moral purity. The body of Christ is, is to be characterized by the life and godliness that we have been enabled to participate in. There is a sense in which, yes, we, we gather and we may struggle at times and we need to share those struggles and keep pressing on. But I'm concerned that so much of Christianity is concerned about sharing its struggles that we don't recognize what we have. The church is not just a place where you share your struggles, though that is a part of it. It's a place where we live together as God's people in a morally pure way because that's who we are. His divine power, 2 Peter 1.3, has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. Moral purity will always be a characteristic of the church as we set ourselves as his people.